author, theologian R.C. Sproul once said, it is one thing to believe in God. It is quite another to believe God. I think it's easy, particularly in this country, to find people who believe in God. It's not quite as easy sometimes to find people who actually believe him. Right? Think about it. Do you honestly believe everything that he says? For what it's worth, uh, by the way, sometimes I have to ask myself this question when I read the Bible and then reflect on my own life. I look at how I'm living it, and sometimes I have to ask myself, do I honestly believe what I'm reading here? Because being faithful, full of faith, means believing in every word uttered by God. Right? Because if any of it is not true, well, then you have to question uh, all of it. Right? If, if any of it is if, if not true, then... You have to question all of it simply because of the claims that Jesus made about himself, that he, that he was holy, that he was righteous. Particularly, he said he was the perfect son of God. Right? Being faithful as a Christian means believing every single word ever uttered by God. And yet, to be honest, I'm not sure that always looks like what we think it looks like. Right? We say all the time, the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God we say we believe that but listen in Matthew 6 24 Jesus said you cannot love God and money and of course we say we love God and I believe that but boy we sure do love our money and then the very next verse Jesus said we're not to worry about our lives but honestly I I think we worry about our lives all the time Matthew 25 41 through 46, Jesus said, if you don't serve the poor and suffering, you not only won't make it into heaven, he says you'll actually be sent to hell. Do we honestly believe that? And if so, is, is the evidence of that clearly evident in our lives and how we're living our lives day by day? In Matthew twenty two thirty nine, 39, he said, love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. Are we loving people to that degree? Are we treating them as well as we treat ourselves? In Matthew five eleven, he says, you're blessed when you're persecuted. Yet I think most of us, when we're insulted, let alone persecuted, I think most of us are more inclined to rant and complain and fight back than we are to rejoice in our newfound blessing and then to bless others for it, right? John 15, 19, Jesus said, the world will hate you. The world will hate you. And then he takes it a step further in Luke 6, 22, where he says, blessed are you when people hate you. Really? When they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. I'm just asking you, when's the last time you leapt for joy when somebody treated you like dirt? Right? For, because of what you believe. I mean, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad, by the way. I'm simply asking you to be honest with yourself as I have to be with myself. Ask yourself whether or not you really do believe everything that Jesus said. Because look, being faithful, being full of faith, I don't, I don't think that always looks like what we think it's supposed to look like. In fact, I think all too often uh, in the Western church, we equate being faithful with being successful. Mother Teresa once said, God has not called me to be successful. He's called me to be faithful. Do you understand? That's just as true of us as it was of her. God didn't call you to be successful. He called you to be faithful. And the reason he calls you to be faithful is because he is faithful. In fact, 
God is faithful whether or not we are. Right, referring to the people of God in his letter to the church in Rome, the apostle Paul said, does their faithlessness, he's talking to Christians, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, God's faithful no matter what, and he's calling us to be faithful too, full of faith, which is not the same thing as being successful, at least not according to this world's standard of success, right? Certainly, if we're talking about the all-time most faithful people in human history, those first followers of Jesus Christ, his disciples, were without question uh, some of the most faithful people of all time. I mean, they have to be a, a big part of that discussion at least, right? And yet, according to early church history, the apostle Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was run through with four spears by soldiers in India. Philip was tortured to death in Asia Minor. Bartholomew was flayed to death with a whip in Armenia. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and then clubbed to death. Matthias was burned to death. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. John was exiled to the island of Patmos after being boiled in oil in Rome. And James, the brother of Jesus and pastor of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple for refusing to deny his faith in Christ. It was more than a hundred foot drop. It miraculously, he survived the fall. So his attackers beat him to death instead. Now, let me ask you something. Were they successful? After being called and discipled by Jesus himself, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit and sent out by the church, they were rejected, beaten, tortured, and brutally killed. Is that a picture of success? Is that what you envision when you think about what success looks like for your own life? No, I don't, I don't think so. Right, according to the standards of this world, those early followers of Christ were not successful people and yet without question, without question they were faithful people because they understood that what God was looking for from them was faithfulness, not successfulness. And therein lies, I think, one of the all-time great misunderstandings in the modern church because today we equate being successful with being faithful. And as a result, look, you can become a wildly successful person who believes in Jesus Christ while living a terribly unfaithful life. Sometimes without even realizing it. Because in much of our church culture today, we've come to view earthly success among believers as an indication of their faithfulness. But God never called us to live successful lives, at least, again, not according to the world's standard of success. No, he called us to live faithful lives. And in living that way, when we live faithfully for him, what we are guaranteed is his righteousness in us, his promises fulfilled in our lives, and free access to him 24-7, which I'm telling you is infinitely better than any worldly success you could ever imagine in your wildest dreams. It's so important to remember, a faithful life in Christ does not always resemble a successful life in this world. Okay? A faithful life in Christ will not always resemble a successful life in this world. So be careful not to confuse the two because you can live a remarkably faithful life that looks like failure to the world. We need not look any further than the prophets and apostles 
course, Jesus himself to see that, right? You can live a remarkably faithful life that looks like failure to the world. And yet on the flip side, you can experience tremendous success according to every metric this world uses to measure success with little to no fidelity, faithfulness to God's actual calling on your life. And so it is imperative. If you care about faithfully answering God's call on your life, it's imperative that you don't confuse worldly success with godly approval. Because although those two things certainly will at times coincide with one another, often they don't. And for that very reason, it matters deeply that we understand what faith actually produces in our lives because it may not always look like what we think it's supposed to look like, which is the message the Apostle Paul is trying to convey to the church in Rome in this next part of his letter, as we'll see as we continue working our way through Romans. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time. In Romans chapter 4, we'll begin by reading the first 12 verses. Romans 4, 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous, righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? This is important. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Listen, Abraham was the most esteemed man among the Jewish people of Paul's day. And so Paul uses Abraham to make his point because there were Christians in the church at Rome at the time who were keeping score. They were weighing their good deeds against the bad, their successes against their failures with the idea that as long as the first list outnumbered the second, they could consider themselves righteous before God and men. And so Paul says, let's just take a minute and consider Abraham. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Our forefather according to the flesh. In other words, if anyone could make a case for being righteous based on their works, justified by their works, surely we all agree it would have to be Abraham. In fact, that's exactly what the Jews believed. The Jewish teachers of Paul's day believed that Abraham was justified by his works through perfectly keeping the law. Now think about that. Because that was before the law was even given. That's how righteous they believed Abraham was by his works, that he kept the law before God actually gave the law. We actually have ancient passages from rabbinical writings where the rabbis said, and I'm quoting, we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given. And again, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. Yet notice Paul doesn't say that Abraham was made righteous by his works. No, he says that God counted Abraham as righteous because he believed 
God, right? He not only believed in God, but he believed God. And it was through that faith, that belief, that Abraham was justified, okay? By the way, to be justified is to be counted righteous by God. It's an act of God whereby he counts a sinner as righteous through faith in Christ, of course, because of the work of Christ, not our work, the mechanics of which we talked about in in detail last week where we discussed the redeeming work of Christ. So I won't rehash all of that now, but Paul is making a very important point here because our justification is not God making us perfectly righteous, right? How many of you are sinless? How many of you are perfectly righteous today? No, it's God counting us as perfectly righteous because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do. And then after we're counted as righteous by God, even though we, we can't merit that or haven't earned it or deserve it, then he begins the work in us to make us truly righteous. That's the ongoing work of sanctification, which is only complete, of course, at our resurrection. And then Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if salvation was based on our works, then God, in granting a person salvation, would simply be repaying what he owed that person. Just as an employer pays a worker his wages for his work which is how the Jews viewed justification. But that's a backward way of thinking because a system of works, listen, a system of works seeks to put God in debt to us. Right? It makes God owe us his favor because of our righteous behavior. And so to further his point, Paul introduces David, considered to be Israel's greatest king. So he brings up two of, of their own greatest that have ever lived as another example of righteousness by faith by quoting Psalm 32 to demonstrate the fact that David's righteousness like Abraham's was not based on his works. As we all know, David was a mixed bag when it came to his works. And then because the Jews and even many Jewish Christians believed that circumcision was the entry point to a life lived under the law and therefore to the kingdom of God, which would exclude any uncircumcised Gentiles who were in the church at the time Paul was writing to. So Paul argues the fact, he says, look, faith came first then the covenant of circumcision. And for that reason, faith is the only true means of a right relationship with God. And then finally, as Paul is so fond of doing, just to add insult to injury, as a bit of an exclamation point to this teaching, Paul refers to Abraham as the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Them's fighting words. Okay, that doesn't sound like a big deal to us. It was a big deal. The title Father Abraham was deeply important, profoundly important to the ancient Jews. It was a title, actually, they guarded jealously. In fact, they would not allow the Gentiles, even even circumcised Gentile converts to Judaism, they were not permitted to refer to Abraham as our father in the synagogue. They had to refer to Abraham as your father to the Jews. Only natural-born Jews could call Abraham. Our Father. And so here's Paul. And he tosses that right out the window and he says, Through faith, all can now say, Our Father, Abraham. He is stirring people up. See, Paul's hammering the point home to the church that it's only through faith that we're justified by God. Look, in the Old Testament, when someone shed blood as a sacrifice, The effect of that sacrifice was applied to the one offering the sacrifice, which meant our purification from sin was dependent upon ongoing sacrificial acts. But when Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrifice and sent, uh, and his blood, his own blood was shed, 
the effect, the, the benefit of that sacrifice was applied to all of us by absolutely no effort or merit or enlightenment on our own. And it was applied once for all. Charles Spurgeon said Christ took the sins of his people and was punished for those sins as if he had been himself a sinner and so sin is taken away from us. But in no sense, degree, shape, or form is sin removed by attainments, emotions, feelings, or experiences, or great altar calls, or lofty sounding prayers, or sincerity. In other words, we have no claim whatsoever to justification by our own efforts, our own good deeds, our own sacrifices, or our own enlightenment, or spiritual maturity, or anything else for that matter. All of that can come along with it. Some of that can be really good, but it's not what saves us. It is by and only by the shed blood of Jesus that we're justified by his grace through our faith. So Paul leaves no room here for people in the church to make any claim otherwise. He was making certain that those in the church understood that Jesus alone is our source of salvation, which he accomplishes by his grace through our faith because there were religious people leading non-religious people closer toward their religious behavior and at the same time further away from Jesus. And so Paul says, hey guys, knock it off. This isn't the way. Jesus did what he did for all. Not just for the religious, not just for the well-behaved, not just for the successful, not just for the enlightened, not just for those who are spiritually mature, and not just for those who are just like you. There's nothing you can do to merit your own justification. It is only by faith, and it is, by the way, for all who believe. Which means no matter how broken, how dysfunctional, how spiritually uneducated or immature, no matter how mixed up or messed up a person is when they walk in the church, no matter how unsuccessful they may be, the very last thing they should ever experience or even sense in the slightest is seasoned Christians looking down their noses back at them as if we've somehow attained to something great by our own enlightenment. No, Paul's crystal clear. Not one of us can claim one shred of responsibility for the saving of our souls, for that is the result of only one man's blood being shed, and it isn't yours, and it isn't mine, so that no one may boast, but in Christ Jesus alone, the sole source of our salvation. And you know what that does? Among other things, it keeps us humble, knowing that truth, that we're justified through faith in Jesus Christ, our soul source of salvation, and it keeps us compassionate toward those who have yet to experience that salvation, right? Because we know that it has absolutely nothing to do with our own effort or enlightenment or success, okay? Spiritual humility is often a strong indicator of an authentic faith. In fact, if I'm being honest, the people that I'm most leery of are those who act as if they're spiritually superior to everyone else around them. Beware of those kinds of people. The fact is spiritual arrogance is a common trait among cult leaders and false teachers and all those who prey on God's people by leading them away from God's people. I've seen it firsthand more times than I can count in the last 30 years of church ministry. People in the church who believe they're more spiritually enlightened than everyone else as if God has somehow given them a special revelation that only they have. And more often than not, they leave the local church behind to start something new, something different, something better. 
because they believe they're enlightened. In the way, you can always tell if, a true, if it's a true work of God or a, a twisted work of men is whether or not it's based on works, even spiritual works, where there's a spiritual arrogance, a controlling spirit that requires you to act like them and worship like them and think like them. So listen, if it points you to them rather than pointing you to Jesus, when you encounter that, run away. It's actually very sad because what they see as true enlightenment, what they believe is uncommon among the average church member is actually nothing more than a spiritual arrogance that often leads to an inauthentic faith. To be very careful about that. Remember what Paul said in the last chapter? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Not one of us is justified by our qualifications, by our knowledge of Jesus or our spiritual maturity. In fact, there was no one closer to Jesus than the apostle John. And he said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I hear people say all the time, the church is not a building, it's the people. Well, that's true, but that's not complete. The church is not the building. The church is the people when we are together. When we're gathered, we are the church, right? So look, when someone breaks fellowship with the church, and I, by the way, there are great house churches. I've been in several of them. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. You understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about people who lead people away from God because they believe they've attained to some higher enlightenment or revelation. When someone breaks fellowship with other believers with the local church, they're decidedly not walking in the light. By the way, both those phrases, I looked it up, walk in the light and cleanses us from sin, use present tense verbs, just to be sure you understand, walking in the light and being cleansed from sin, uh, according to Paul, are both, or John, excuse me, are both ongoing processes throughout our lives here on this earth. So no one on this side of eternity has fully arrived yet. In other words, none of us has arrived spiritually. We're only all and only justified by faith so that no one may boast. You understand there's no room for spiritual arrogance in the church because none of us has the market cornered on spiritual maturity or holiness or wisdom or spiritual superiority. No, we're all meant to be learning from one another. You from me, me from you, you from you. <laughs> we're all supposed to be making disciples out of each other. I've always pictured it. Discipleship is a long chain of people with our arms linked. In any given moment in my life, I should always be able to look back here and say to the to one here, hey, buddy, listen, let me help you get to where I am in my relationship with Jesus. Come on, come with me. And at the same time, I should always be looking forward to this one up here and say, hey, pal, can you help me get to where you are on this road, your relationship with Jesus? Because I'm not quite there yet. And we're all linked arm in arm going the same direction. It's what uh, Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. We're all moving toward Jesus, helping one another along. There's no one up here, and the rest of us are down here, right? No one has arrived spiritually. We're all justified by faith. There's no room for it in the church. It's one of the differences between someone who simply believes in God and someone who also believes God. Richard Lenski said, no sinner... And try he ever so hard can possibly carry his own sins away and come back cleansed of guilt. 
No amount of money, no science, no inventive skill, no armies of millions, nor any other earthly power can carry away from the sinner one little sin and its guilt. Once it's committed, every sin and its guilt cling to the sinner as close as does his own shadow. Cling to all eternity unless God carries them away. Let's keep reading verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's another little poke by Paul. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thank you, Lord. So in addition to continuing his treatise on justification by faith, Paul now opens up the discussion to include the many promises, miraculous promises, in fact, in Abraham's life. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, promised by God, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb, calling into existence things that do not exist. Verse 20 and 21, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He was full of faith. Okay, God, God made some heady promises to Abraham, who, by the way, was a sojourner in a foreign land who would physically and spiritually father many nations, beginning with a child conceived from a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old barren wife. And yet none of those promises were answered through Abraham's efforts. If you're familiar with the story, he actually almost really screwed things up. None of those promises were answered through Abraham's efforts or spiritual superiority. They were answered because Abraham not only believed in God, but he actually believed God. Even though his faith wasn't perfect, even though they may have questioned the promise at first, ultimately they believed God, and through that simple faith in what God had spoken over them, world-changing promises were fulfilled through them. Because Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, which, by the way, applies to you and me today. Paul says the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us, to you and me, who believe in him. And therein lies a question for us today. 
are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised to do in your life? Not my life or the person next to you. Are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised to do in your life? Because according to Paul, it is through faith we receive the promises of God. Not through our education, our worldly success, our religious behavior, our material gain, our relational influence, or anything else but faith. So I'm simply asking you, are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised to do in your life? Listen, even if that means calling into existence things that do not exist, do you believe he'll do what he's promised for you or not? Because I I don't know if you know this or not, but he's actually promised to do extraordinary things in your life. Miraculous things. Maybe you don't realize that, but he's pretty clear on this point. When Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection and rebuked them for not believing, not having faith, what the other disciples told him, that Jesus had already been revealed to them, right? that he was in fact alive, that he'd called into existence something that didn't previously exist. So after rebuking them for their lack of faith, he then gives all of them, even the doubters, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so, again, it all comes down to faith. And then he continues, uh, notice how believing, how faith, according to Jesus, is the essential ingredient to accomplishing the Great Commission, to living the extraordinary life he has promised you. And these signs will accompany, Jesus says. Who will they accompany? Those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Mark 16, 15 through 18. So Jesus says, for those who truly believe that I'll do what I've promised to do for you. As you spend your life telling others about me, I am going to do extraordinary things in you and through you. You'll cast out demons. Speak in new tongues. Pick up serpents with your hands. And if you drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt you. You will lay your hands on the sick and they will recover. In other words, if you will simply believe the promises I've spoken over your life, you will do extraordinary things, miraculous things, even if you can't see it now, even if those things don't exist in your life now. Jesus says, I will call them into existence I don't know if you realize this or not, but you were created to live an extraordinary life. In fact, a supernatural life, which is a promise he made good on for those early disciples. If you keep reading that same passage, it says, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Exactly what Jesus said would happen is what happened for those who believed. And the reason that should matter to us today is because Jesus never changes. His word never changes, which means what he promised to his disciples then, he promises to his disciples now, which also means one of the hallmarks of a true believer's life should be the supernatural purpose and protection and power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us as we live out the extraordinary life that he's called every single one of us to live. Of course, you understand We don't follow after signs and wonders. For those who truly believe, signs and wonders are supposed to follow after us. 
That's what Jesus said would happen when you believe. I'm telling you, it's an extraordinary life, the one that has lived for his purpose under his protection and by his power. It's unlike any other life you could ever live, and it is exactly the life he has created and called and empowered you to live. It's the life he promised you. But I'm just telling you, you won't experience any of it if you don't believe all of it. And the truly amazing thing about that is just how many professing Christians there are today who don't live that way because we believe what this world says about us more than we believe what Jesus says about us. So as a result, we live up to this world's standards for our lives instead of his standards for our lives. We search for worldly success instead of godly faithfulness. I'm just telling you, we, we really need to get over this need that many of us have for the world's approval. Because listen, when you decide to actually follow the will of God for your life, there will absolutely be people in your life who will tell you you're doing the wrong thing. There will be people who will go out of their way to try and stop you. There will be people who are convinced that you're not following the will of God. And that's when you have to decide whose voice you believe more, this world or God's. Because if following God's will for your life is predicated upon everyone around you being in agreement that what you're about to embark upon is the right thing for you to do, then you might as well give up right now because that is never going to happen. I've lived it in my own life, yet there are so many believers who never fully realize the promises of God in their lives because other people have convinced them that the calling is not possible, it's not profitable, it's too risky, it's too uncertain, or there are too many unknowns. You see, what they're, what they're really saying is the promise of God in your life is the problem. The specific commands that God has given you to follow, that's the problem because it's too risky. It's too uncertain. That's going to cost you too much. The fact is there will never be a shortage of people who will tell you that what you're doing for God is the wrong thing for you to be doing because actually following the will of God for your life is going to require you to walk by faith and that is simply not something most people are willing to do on a daily basis and if they're not willing to do it, they don't think you should either. And now listen, without a doubt, that's a safe bet. That's the easy road, the comfortable path and often it's the road to successfulness if not faithfulness. John Rice said, the world never burned a casual Christian at the stake. Most people would rather walk by sight and they expect you to do the same because that feels far less risky and far more predictable, but that's not how God called us to live. I mean, do we need to go back and read the Gospels? He called us to walk by faith. So what do we do? What's the answer? When, when do we know we've heard from God? When we know we've heard from him and we know what he's promised to do through us, yet the moment we decide to do it, it seems like all hell breaks loose and the entire world is coming against us. How do we overcome the world? Mary Beth talked about it this morning. The answer is by our faith. Faith that God will do what he's promised to do. Look, even if he has to call into existence something that doesn't currently exist in your life, I'm telling you he will, if need be. So don't listen to the voices who try to convince you that your calling is not possible just because they don't have enough faith in Jesus Christ to believe he can actually accomplish in you what he's promised to. Okay? His promise being fulfilled in your life is not dependent on other people's approval. It's dependent on him 
who happens to be the only person in human history who has never broken a promise. So why do you think he'd break his promise to you? Catherine Booth, who along with her husband William founded the Salvation Army, she once said, we are made for larger ends than earth can encompass. Oh, let us be true to our exalted destiny. Let's finish our story for today. We'll go into chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So again, Paul's continuing to describe the redeeming work of Christ in our lives, but this time it's in a bit of a different context as he opens this chapter with, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just to be clear, uh, this is not the peace of God that is discussed in other parts of Scripture, like Philippians 4, 7, which says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful truth and a wonderful passage, but that's the peace of God that he grants his children in troubled times. What Paul is talking about here in Romans is peace with God for those who are lost. This is a reconciling peace through faith that ends the battle between us and God. Before coming to Christ, we were at enmity with God, before we submitted our lives to Him. And so this peace that Paul talks about here is the peace we experience when our souls pass from death to life, which we're gonna talk more about next time. And so what's the purpose of this different kind of peace that Paul talks about? It's access, personal access to the Creator that only comes through faith. It's an access that lost people do not have and cannot have outside of faith in Christ. Paul explains, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, which honestly is the most shocking and life-altering revelation about faith revealed in this letter up to this point. The fact that through faith, we actually have access to God. That, everyone in the room right there should have gasped. We're so used to hearing it, we don't even think about it. Listen, as created beings, we don't actually have the capacity to fully comprehend the majesty or power or capability of an uncreated God. We, we cannot truly fathom the depth of his understanding or the immeasurable scope of his wisdom and knowledge. There's no point of reference in our humanness from which we can grasp the infinitude of a being with no beginning and no end who with the power of his voice 
created the heavens and the earth and all that is within them. To meditate on the creator is the greatest endeavor and highest ideal of the human experience. And yet, to have access to him. My God, it's almost unthinkable. In fact, there could be no loftier goal in all of humanity than to draw near to this unfathomable, boundless, all-consuming, unstoppable, terrifyingly powerful, and all-knowing God whose single greatest desire is to draw near to you. When Moses was facing the most profoundly dangerous and difficult challenge of his life, the prospect of walking into the king's court in Egypt where he was already wanted for murder to demand that Pharaoh release his entire workforce, millions of Jews to be led away by Moses, never to be seen by Pharaoh again, right? That was a death wish as far as Moses was concerned. And so Moses says to God, hey, hey, excuse me, I can't do that. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Exodus 3.11. Do you know what God's response to Moses was? Verse 12. But Moses, I will be with you. In other words, you're not alone. When Joshua was facing the greatest challenge of his life, the prospect of marching into the land of Canaan to drive out and conquer all of the pagan people of that land, including the giant warrior clans that inhabited the area, God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Are you kidding me? Why not be frightened? Why wouldn't I be dismayed? And God's answer was, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. In other words, you are not alone. As the great Persian Empire was rising up all around the people of God, facing the prospect of not only having lost their freedom as they were already living in exile in Babylon, but now the very real possibility of losing their very identity as God's chosen people. Do you know what God said to them through the prophet Isaiah? He said, fear not. Really? Why wouldn't I be afraid? And God's answer was, for I am with you. Isaiah 41.10, in other words... You're not alone. Facing the prospect of living the rest of their natural lives on earth without the physical presence of Jesus being with them anymore. One of the last things Jesus said to his disciples was, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. In other words, it's okay. You're not alone. How is it we're not alone? When life comes crashing down on us, it feels like we're alone. When he calls us to otherwise impossible things, when it seems like we, we need to live the life he's created us to live, but it doesn't even exist. How do I know God is with me? Well, first of all, it's because of the work of Christ in our lives, and it's through faith. You have unfettered access to God. Right? And we all know life's full of challenges. In fact, I bet most of us could name something right now in our lives that we know we need to overcome. Something we need to move beyond or to conquer in order to go wherever God wants to lead us. And yet sometimes the challenge is great. Right? Let's be honest. Sometimes the prospect of facing it is overwhelming. And those are times when we tend to take stock of what we have or don't have, the things we think we need to meet that challenge, and we consider whether or not there are other people who are willing to meet that challenge with us, and we especially dwell on the magnitude of the challenge itself. 
And yet when the answers to those questions come up short, our natural response is usually to avoid the challenge altogether because we don't believe we're able to confront it. We lack the simple faith to not only believe in God, but to actually believe God. Namely, his greatest promise of all, that no matter what you're ever going to face in your entire life, he is with you. God's word is clear. If you're a child of God, then God, the unfathomable, boundless, all-consuming, unstoppable, terrifyingly powerful, and all-knowing author and creator of all of this and all of us is with you always, which is always more than enough to meet every single challenge in your life. The question is, do you believe it? Author Linda Evans Shepherd wrote, Sometimes we forget we're on an adventure with the Lord and that his presence is with us. You see, in the end, it all comes down to faith. And not just a faith that believes in God, that believes he is who he says he is, but a faith that believes God. A faith that believes every word he's ever spoken, including every word he's ever spoken to you. Because believing in God is believing he can change the world. Believing God is believing he can change the world through you. Which is exactly what he wants to do. Listen, not through your good deeds or your good behavior or your good intentions, but through your faith. Through your faith. Because it is through your faith that God has promised you an extraordinary life. It's a life you cannot find in anyone or anything else. But to live the life he's promised you, you're going to have to believe he'll make good on every single word of it. And then, this is the hard part, you have to go out and live it. You've got to live like it. Even if what you need to live that life doesn't yet exist, live like you know it does. And when the time is right, he will call into existence whatever you need to fulfill that promise in your life. I guarantee it. How do I know? Well, aside from the fact that he's done it in my lifetime again, he did it for Abraham, he did it for Moses, he did it for Joshua, he did it for David, he did it for Rahab, he did it for Ruth, he did it for Esther, he did it for Mary, he did it for Peter and John and Paul and all the rest of the apostles, and he will do it for you. He will. I'm telling you, he will lead you into an extraordinary life through faith. He's promised that he would. The only question left is, do you believe him? Let's pray.